Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jane Richards and today I have the pleasure of introducing Dr. Faye Garland at the University of Manchester and Dr. Mitchell Travis from the University of Leeds. We're here to talk about their book today, Intersex Embodiment, Legal Frameworks Beyond Identity and Disorder. And it was published by Bristol University Press in 2023, so it's brand new. Faye and Mitch, welcome to the show. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for having us. It's my pleasure. Now, just to get us both to get us started, I'm wondering if you can first tell me a little bit about yourselves and how you came to write Intersex Embodiment, Legal Frameworks Beyond Identity and Disorder. Gosh. <laughs> there was a long lead-in to writing this book. Um, so Mitch and I started working together, what, about 12 years ago? And while we were early career researchers at Exeter, we put together a module and Mitch um, invited a local intersex organization and offer, uh, to give a presentation on, on issues affecting the intersex community. And from that, we put together a small grant funded by the SLSA. And then that tiny grant has just, I think, spiraled into something very big and quite nebulous. Um, and we started to work on lots of different projects um, that we brought together under the book yeah so we like you say we we started working together on the same day in 2011 we were at the same job interviews and we shared an office for the first two years um but then yeah the 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 slsa grant helped us to interview 16 intersex people throughout the world about their perspectives on on law and intersex um and then it took us a long time to get that data out for various reasons i think we had three children between getting that grant not together separately um <laughs> getting the grant and and publishing some of that data and like Faye said it's just run and run when we were when we were talking to intersex organizations uh, before we wrote the grant it, it it felt like we had a lot to offer here in terms of our legal expertise it seemed like that was missing from the conversation um, and so we we kind of figured that there would be like impact potential from this, but I think we'd been surprised by how much that's been the case. Yeah, and, and 
And again, also when we began, there was it was a real pivotal moment in terms of the way that law was beginning to engage with this area. So we really came at a time where we started to see a huge amount of legal reform. I think really from the moment we started writing the grant, it, it just seemed to like spiral. So a lot of what we've been doing has been, I guess, at the cutting edge of some of that legal reform, hasn't it? We've been tracing that impact and that that story over the past sort of 10 years or so. Yeah, I think we've we've ridden the wave, haven't we, of legal reform a little bit. Yeah. Uh, it's been cool. Yeah, but it's super interesting and really important work. Like, to be honest, before your book, I hadn't come across anything written about intersex. Um, I don't know, maybe you want to tell me a little bit about the law and reform process and how you were part of that. Do you think it's helpful to tell a little bit about what intersex is? Yes, that would be great, actually. Um, So intersex variations are people who are born with um, chromosomal, hormonal uh, or genetic patterns that put them outside of the typical categories of male or female. So maybe or at the intersection of those two categories. Um, they're congenital variation, so it's not an identity that you can become. It's something that happens uh, within a person's body, you know, from from when they're born. It's something they're born with, um, and then and then, but it's picked up at different stages. So sometimes it'll be picked up in at birth because there'll be atypical uh, genital variations or sex characteristics, and they'll be picked up quite quickly. But then we we speak to people regularly who find out in their, you know, mid to late thirties who are who who want children and they they go to their doctors and they say, well, how come how come I'm trying to try and um, and the doctor says, well, you you don't have a uterus, for example, you know, um, so that, that's kind of what intersex is, and that might be helpful in terms of grounding some of this stuff. Yeah, that's super helpful, um, and so. I know we're going to go into detail on this, but one of the key ideas that does come through in the book has been the role that medicine has played in identifying, cataloging, cataloging and understanding in the intersex experience. And I think that sort of picks up on what you just hinted at, that intersex can be picked up at all different type stages through a person's life. But it is, it does sound like there's, you know, real prominence in terms of medical diagnosis and expertise. So perhaps you can tell me a little bit about that. There's a quite there's a really long history of um, medical dominance in this area that sort of stems from the Victorian era, um, and particularly taking hold along with kind of medical advancements in diagnoses and the sorts of like surgical interventions and hormonal interventions that could be provided really in the mid twentieth um, century, and accompanying that there was. Um, work by Professor John Money on um, the way that gender identity develops that really entrenched this kind of medical understanding of intersex and this medical, I guess, regulation of um, of intersex bodies. Um, but the, re- the result of that has been a kind of social erasure of, of intersex in a variety of different capacities, you know, a social erasure in terms of everyday understandings, um, but also an erasure from legislative frameworks as well. So there was legal recognition of intersex variations and intersex people, but as kind of medicine has really co-opted this um, uh, uh, and intervened in a variety of ways, we've just seen that sort of disappear from any form of sort of social legal consciousness. Yeah, so, I mean, it's worth thinking about that, that 19th century history of medicine 
uh, in terms of Alice, Alice Drager talks about this in her book. Um, but one of the things that medicine was trying to do was prevent same sex relationships. That's what it was hot on. That's what it was trying to prevent. And that was where some of the impetus came to really regulate this sphere but to do it through medicine, but the, the moral imperative was there. And also to ensure that there was correct gender relations, right? So, you know, jobs and inheritance, all of these things at that time are dictated by gender. So the, the medical impetus intervening in this area came from this really clear separation of sex and gender. And so it's funny then to watch that play out again and again and again through to where like Faye's talking about medicine in the 50s with, with John Money uh, and the John Hopkins Center in the US. Again, all of this is is playing out over and over again and, and to some extent still playing out now. And now the reason that Faye says there's an erasure there is because what happens uh, it, from the 19th century, 20s, 30s, uh, sorry, of the 20th century, people start to say, well, these people can be put into a true category of sex. They can be, they, we don't have a middle sex. We don't have a, an intersex. These people are male or female, and we can place them into the binary, and we can do that through medical intervention. And so that is where the erasure comes from, because when they're talking to parents in the 50s through to probably the 90s, maybe even a little bit later, and maybe now still actually uh, they're saying we you know your your child is a boy or a girl and you, they just need to be finished in these certain ways through these surgical procedures and then they will be quote unquote normal and so then you lose these people because they they they're fixed and they're kicked out of the you know the healthcare system and you don't necessarily see them again um, and but they don't know they're intersex, or their parents don't know they're intersex. It wasn't explained to them in those terms. So that's why we've seen that really latent uh, political consciousness and organising around intersex, because, like Faye said, they've been erased. Can you tell me a little bit more about this political consciousness and the sort of politics surrounding intersex? Yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Sorry. I was waiting for Faye. Uh, yeah. Exactly. I mean, so. In the in the 1990s, we start to see this shift towards organising around intersex um, in a in a real uh, in, in a real organised way, right? So you have Interact. I think there was it Interact Isner. Sorry, the Inter Intersex Society of North America in the US in the 1990s, organised around someone called Bolarant who sent a letter, I think, to Nature in response to something they published to say, we're organising this thing. It might have been called Hermaphrodites with Attitude before that, but it went on to become ISNA. And a lot of uh, consciousness was built around that. So people became involved with the movement through that, and they became involved through um, all, all over the world, right? So you still at that point they're using vhs and letters maybe the early uh parts of the the internet to start organizing but that's when this people start to come together and they're like this experience chimes with what has happened to me i would like to be involved in that um but i mean that's its own history we don't touch upon that much in the book but there, there tends to be quite a unitary picture of that but if that I think in some sense this was also a little bit divisive amongst the community about how that was read because they had really clear links with, we do seem to about this in the book, really clear links with LGBT organisations, but were at the same time trying to 
maintain some semblance of a relationship with medical doctors. And they, I think they found treading that line quite difficult, uh, which is eventually what led to them finishing and becoming uh, the Accord Alliance, which is quite a medical focus. And then so I'm really interested in um, the methodology used for your book, because it is such an unusual topic. And um, I mean, my sort of my assumption is that it would be really difficult to get access um, to the information, especially if there is a limit on sort of the way that people are organised. So maybe you can tell me about your methodologies. So, um, yeah, we, I mean, a method, yeah, it, it's a difficult, um, it's a difficult area through which to conduct research. Um, we used empirical methodology and on a first project that was quite simple, really, in the sense that we were asking people to speak with us who were already um outspoken and making um uh, um uh, you know speaking with po uh, politicians coming out making reports to media so they were quite willing to engage in a in a public way and speak with researchers um with our study on malta which was a much more in-depth exploration into the impact of specific form of legislation to seeing and speaking to individuals with intersex traits is actually very difficult um, and wasn't it was a suitable hurdle that we came across um uh there are multiple reasons that go into that but you know essentially it's a very stigmatized um uh area there's a lot of shame there's a lot of not wanting to come out and speak to people and tell people your story so i think it is a specific form of methodological challenge in any researcher trying to build knowledge um, and understanding in this um in this area um, I mean, yeah, I, I, we had to swallow a lot of pride here as mm. well. We talk about this in the book, actually, and it's the part that everyone seems to really resonate with this journey that we went on because we were we were young. You know, we were both of us kind of two years or a year out of our PhDs, new area. Um, and we were looking at X markers because that's what really mm. was big at the time. So Australia yeah, had that, these that X was a markers. Controversy, wasn't it? That was a political hot topic. Yeah, Germany had just uh, created this sort of blank space for for children born into sex, and we were like, "Yeah, we've got this money from the Socio Legal Studies Association, and this is what we're going to study, and it's going to be so cool." So we went to the first couple, of, and we, we had this all signed off by a couple of intersex people in the UK. But we went to some activists, uh, international activists worldwide and said, would you mind participating in this study? It's going to be really great. And they were like, no. And we were like, oh, <laughs> yeah. uh, that's a bit of a shame. And they were like, yeah, how, how dare you come and speak to us about X markers when the real problems that our community face are around uh, non-therapeutic surgical interventions? So how, how dare you frame this completely in this way? So we were like, oh, um, well, we could you know we thought <laughs> that when we did the interviews that other things might come up and we're not we're not adverse to that you know we're really happy to that and they said no by framing it in this way that you have around x markers you're not focusing on the kind of uh topics that we want to we, we want to prioritize it's really dangerous thing to do and we won't speak to you and that was a real shock to us and i think we had to be we had to be a lot more humble than we were. We had to do a lot of learning. We had to go back to the drawing board. We had to go back to the SLSA and say, can we change the title and the focus of this? Yeah. And we there went was a lot back. of self there was a lot of self-reflection, I think, it 
well, it's a, self-reflection is a continual part of being a researcher, I think, but particularly in those early years, a lot of self-reflection about what also what we were trying to do with the project as well, because I think there's a tension between your role as a researcher and your employment as being a, a lecturer who also is under, you know, contractual obligations to get research out and things like that. And um, doing research with, or I guess I mean, started on really um, a, a marginalized, very vulnerable um, community. And I think that we had to really think about our motivations behind that and be quite honest about it. Um, and a lot of, the work that we've produced has been through um, the support that we've had from um, intersex communities. I think um, there's been a lot of patient people with us <laughs> who who have actually taken time to really do the work of educating us um, and do that labour for free, essentially. Um, and I think we're quite indebted to to the people who've really um, called us out on some of the intellectual, um, like showboating i guess that that researchers can fall into the trap of into the trap of doing um so methodologically i mean increasingly so mitch and i've been putting together other grants and other projects and you know that idea of this ethics of care this um idea of centering projects around um the participants who you're working with has become increasingly important in the work that we're doing um so I, I guess that's really at the center of the way that we we approach the things that we're doing now about we try to do things in partnership for the benefit of um, the communities that we're working with. I think that's right. And I think that moment is, is central from when we've moved from wor working like on a community to working with a community. And it has just completely shifted our praxis, the way we operate, the way we integrate things, the way that we will take our ideas to those communities and trial them out with them before we do the research and but that but that pays dividends right because we we just had a book review from from an activist and an academic who who worked together a review um and they said like they see themselves in that research it's empowering to them because they they it, it reflected the ideas that they wanted to see um, and that they wanted to see spoken about. And then people come to us with new ideas and say, well, now you should look at this. And so the research has become kind of self-perpetuating in a way um, because we we are, you know, it's circular. We, we take the research back to those communities and say, look, I hope this is helpful to you and your struggle. You can take this to policymakers and we can take it to policymakers. And they say, that is helpful. What do we do next? And we say, well, Let's talk about it. So yeah, it's, it's that's that's this research has been super fruitful, and we have published a lot now, and can, we'll continue to publish. We've got no plans to stop, have we? But yeah, <laughs> <laughs> sounds it's like a, a threat, Mitch. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's, that's such a refreshing and humbling story. It's so interesting because I mean, I think as academics, like it's so easy to lose sight of the purpose of the work that we're doing. You know actually getting it out of the ivory tower and empowering the people that you're working with um, and actually having meaningful impact is like so important. Yeah. And it's, but it's something that I, I see or I would look for now if I was doing reviews where people are like, I, I come from this kind of like 
not to dunk on any particular methodology, but like queer theoretical background, like intersex people, they rupture the kind of intellectual boundaries between male and female. And then I'd be like, well, if you actually speak to intersex people, quite a lot of them don't want to do that. And, they want that ivory tower-ness of, I mean, you know, the, there is, of course, in, importance in in reflecting on those sorts of bigger questions, but the, the ivory tower nature, I think, of research has created a lot of mistrust from mm. lots of different communities. And, and that certainly, when particularly when we were starting out, that was certainly something that we came up against, this real kind of um, um, distrust of big powerful institutions within which researchers are working you know so all, all of that um also has an impact on the quality of research that you can produce if you can't access individuals speak with individuals because of this very apparent power dynamic um that is going to inevitably impact the, the quality of research that, that you produce and so that uh, we this that was part of our learning curve and again part of our um i guess our broader methodology but I think it's it's funny as well, like talking about this stuff and looking back on it. This isn't about the book, really. It's about the whole journey. But um, I remember publishing this piece in 2018. It was the first piece out of the 2013 study. And we, you know, put it online and we were like, we're so pleased with this. And all of the participants that we spoke to didn't think that intersex should be equated with non-binary. They were just super clear on that. It's something that they didn't like. And of course, as soon as we put that out there, people started to contact me, particularly, I think, through social media to say, well, I'm intersex and I do identify as non-binary. So how dare you leave my experience out of your data? And we were like, we were looking for people. We were desperate to interview people like you. It would have been so great to be in contact. And that's that's again about building your like rapport with the wider community when it's out there. And so the book, I think, reflects that a little bit more where we're like, you know, we're not, we're not so down on, on that equation. It just doesn't always work. And particularly it doesn't work in law, um, but still leaving open the, the idea that people can have that experience. Sorry, Grace. Um, I think also just being honest about the limitations of your own research as well. You know, we 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 know a lot about law and law's understanding of intersex, but we certainly don't speak at all for intersex lived experience. And we're not by any means have any shape of expertise on what it actually means to live your life um, with intersex variations. Um, but also, that, you know, it gets, gets you thinking about the importance of like how you frame your, your research, the importance of words, the importance of like titles. You know, sometimes the title doesn't feel weighty on research grants, but actually all of that sends out a, a message about how you understand a particular fun, phenomenon and where you might align yourself. And I think, you know, I, I think we think very, very carefully now about the words, the, the words we use. Um, you know, we have a lot of discussion over what particular terminology we use because we don't want to alienate anyone, but yet we need some terminology to be able to express an idea. And the, the book starts and ends mm. there, right? Mm. Because we umdenard over using the term intersex in the title because there's a couple of other contenders, right? So if you're coming from a medical standpoint, which both medical professionals, but also some intersex people are, they see themselves in this like medical framework. You might use the term disorders of sex development. You might use a slightly more open term differences of sex development, but DSDs. 
um, people who are coming from a more kind of LGBT background who don't identify necessarily with that medical pathologization, in part perhaps because of the mistrust of medical institutions themselves, might prefer the term intersex or more recently um, the, there's a term variations in sex characteristics, which is a lot more open, um, but perhaps hasn't got the, um, the the salience at the academic level. Like we publish a book called Variations of Sex Characteristics, which actually Lee May Lau has, and it's a great book. But but will it get the kind of pick up in trade, I guess, of people who are like, I understand at least what that is a little bit. And so I will pick that up. So. The book kind of starts there with, okay, well, these are the different terms that are in use and, and where do we sit with that and why are we using those different terms? But then it also ends with that, where we take you through these kind of epistemological framings, right, where different institutions, whether that's medicine or law or psychosocial care, set up intersex in different ways. And then intersex people see themselves through those lenses and experience their intersex variations through those lenses and that doesn't mean you know like Faye says we don't speak for those people lived experience we can't talk to that but it doesn't mean we can't criticize the epistemologies on which they're based right it doesn't mean that we can't say well actually these framings aren't helpful um and we, and, and it, we end up like not necessarily privileging any of them I think but just trying to see them as like multiple and how when you move into these different institutional spaces you might talk in one register like if you're talking to your doctor, you might use the, the name of your intersex trait or your sex variation. But when you're talking about the kind of rights that you'd like to see from your government, you talk in terms of intersex because it's easier for them to understand. Like there's, there's slippage between all of these terms. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Yeah, I really liked um, the nuances that came out in your book um, that it doesn't, you know, the terms and the terminology doesn't feel really settled um, and there's so much that can sort of be read into it. And as you say, from sort of different perspectives, from like a medical perspective, from a legal perspective, um, you know, from embodiment as well, like it was, that was really fascinating. I want to talk a little bit more, more about the terminology the second chapter, medical embodiment, intersex as disorder. So can you tell me about disorder in this context? Because I think it's really interesting. I mean, simply that um, that medical terminology has been used to diagnose um, intersex variations, present them as a disease um, or disorder that is in need of fixing and that can be fixed and that there are certain types of interventions that um, can be um, 
you know, like surgeries and hormonal therapies that can be used in order to to fix it. Um, disease and disorder, those languages and those words and terminologies are usually the first way in which an individual encounters their intersex variations, you know, with medical and um, professional talking about a disease, talking about a very specific type of diagnosis. Um, uh, and in some ways that can make it quite difficult in terms of mobilizing the community as well, because certain terminology that you might have over a particular diagnosis, an individual might not realize that that is included within the intersex, um, within the intersex umbrella. It's also really powerful to parents, right? So parents are going to be the first people who pick up on their child's intersex variation in lots of circumstances. And so if the doctor says, I can fix your child using these non-therapeutic surgical interventions and they will be normal and they won't be bullied and they will have a lovely normal life, parents are just... Of course, they would go down that route. They, it's in, they think it's in the best interest of their child. Um, and so they are pressured into going along with these elective surgeries and consenting on their child's behalf. Um, and and so this, this disorder narrative, it just has such power in this context because it is the first, it's the first epistemology, right? the first institution that parents and children will be will come up against. So we we did a freedom of information request request um a few years back with um a couple of other scholars. Um and we found like the first meeting they have with the medical team is usually led by um a pediatric urologist or a pediatric pediatric surgeon. So already you know that even you know how those discussions are going to be framed and there's some psychological research. I can't remember the name of the author, Mitch, you're much better with names than I am. Um, that showed actually if you frame something as medicalized, um, individuals are much more likely to protect to um select medical responses in order to cure to cure it. So that you know it really has a profound impact on um the shape of that individual's life going forward. Yeah, the truly is the name of the author. Truly. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine a doctor coming to you and sort of presenting that your child is inherently flawed in some way. The parents, like, exactly, your sort of knee-jerk response is, well, how do we fix this? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I mean, you think about, it like, childbirth in particular, it's a traumatic time anyway. You've got no sleep. You know, there's other, other potential complications with the the mother's body and the dad's pretty freaked out anyway when you add something like this into the mix parents yeah. go through a kind of grieving process that's how they describe it when you ask them um sorry, that's no. where there's the importance of psychosocial of talking you know the, the importance of talking and supporting parents through the talking and i think i mean i think parents have a really interesting role here because it sometimes it's it's more complicated perhaps than just being led down this path of medical interventions but you know we've had ad hoc discussions haven't we about medical professionals seeing parents and parents saying i'm not taking my child home looking like that so there is also this kind of emotional pressure and i think we talk about this idea of um a social emergency as well that you know that medicine is involved with which perhaps intensifies or increases the likelihood of talking about this as a disorder that needs fixing and needs fixing quickly to remedy this potentially broken family unit. 
and and that's the you know, this social emergency right stems from a culture that doesn't recognize the space between male and female so when you say and it just doesn't understand it like we don't have the the tools to discuss it so the first question is still is it a boy or a girl before you before we know the name before we know anything it's still this super gendered binary that parents are presented with that just places it must place enormous pressure on them like we we, we don't shy away from that we feel for these parents difficult situation so then I guess my next question I think this is um a thing that sort of comes through in the book it's about law's power to disrupt these sort of binaries and these categories so perhaps you can comment on this a little bit. Like, what is the role of, like, what can law do in this space? So I, I'm, I'm going to start this and then you can you can answer properly. We did a international book launch and uh, two of the speakers were Sharon Preeves and Morgan Carpenter. Sharon Preeves is a sociologist at Hamline University in the US. Uh, Morgan Carpenter is a, a PhD student and now I think research assistant uh, in Sydney University in the bioethics department, but he's also the chair of Intersex Human Rights Australia. And they both said that we gave law not enough uh, uh, credit. We, 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 yeah, we didn't give enough <laughs> credit for what it could achieve um, and that we were quite harsh on law. And, you know, I, I think that might probably be the case, but I think it stems from coming from a law background where we're, we're just inherently critical of law, I guess. That's what we're, as sociological scholars, I feel like that's what we're kind of trained to do is to bash the law. Maybe um, we're grieving as well, Mitch. Maybe we've been taught as law students that the law is the answer to everything and our whole career has been about how it's not really lived up to the expectations we had when we were 18, 19, 20. So we're, we're really... We need to go into therapy with law, I think. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, you know, I mean, this study in Malta, I think, has has been quite revealing in terms of thinking about the utility of law. So when we wrote about Malta in the book, it was very early days. We only um, had a couple of respondents at that point. And, but now we sort of completed the project and we've got a few more respondents. None of them are intersex for lots of different reasons that we found that quite difficult finding Maltese intersex people. So the pinch of salt is our reflections here are from the attitudes of healthcare practitioners and um, policymakers. But so Malta introduced this amazing legislative reform, it's groundbreaking. Um, it was like celebrated globally, celebrated within activist communities and academic communities. But when we actually started to do these interviews with policymakers and healthcare practitioners, who some of which were very closely involved with legal reform in Malta and further implementation, um, law hasn't changed anything, it seems. Um, there's more political consciousness, but there isn't a growing capacity or um, community of intersex people in Malta. There isn't greater cultural visibility. Um, there is infighting, I think, over what is and what isn't intersex. So it doesn't seem to have changed medical practice as such. And so in that sense, at like kind of a micro, I guess a micro state level, there are questions there about what law can do on its own if it doesn't have the buy-in and support and resources from other different types of mechanisms that you need to get social change. But on the other hand, the Maltese legislation as a result of that 
we're now seeing across Europe, in particular Europe, but not just Europe. Um, um, so like Kenya's got some law reform um, coming in. You know, we've got, we've got all of these different um, countries beginning to introduce legal prohibitions. And so on that like massive macro international scale, uh, you know, it's had it's actually had a really big impact on political consciousness um, mm. and political visibility. So I think law can do something, but I'm reluctant or or I'm not convinced by the extent to which it can change this area. You've got, you know, a century of very entrenched medical narrative here, medical responses and a lack of resources to support. You, you don't have any like bottom up support or resources going on. And I, so I, I don't think law can really disrupt um some of those binary assumptions without something else going on in a bigger sense across society. So uh, this is this is it's an interesting. I was just thinking then as you were talking about the type of research this is, right? So that you know, in universities, like we want challenge-led research. This this is challenge-led research. We are led by the problems that the intersex community face, right? And that presents challenges but it also presents opportunities for us as scholars because I can't sit here and say like I'm a medical negligence lawyer all that I do is look at medical negligence in this one or different context and tell you about medical negligence if they need a criminal lawyer or a family lawyer or a medical lawyer that that is what we then have to offer right because this we we were constantly moving with the with the goals of this diff, of this of these different communities and so what I think now we're interested in and this this is i guess the point is that we're shifting our focus towards the kind of afterlives of law or afterlives of legislation so what are the effects culturally legally medically and it's a shift in focus from okay right now we've introduced legislation well what happens next and that isn't something that we've necessarily done previously it's it's sort of exploring the momentum of change post-law, isn't it? You know, and uh, Malta is a very specific experience. Um, and we're, what, seven, eight years on in the broad scheme of things. That's still not a massive amount of time, even though, it, you know, in terms of like tracing social change. Um, but it's trying to think about it, how to keep that momentum going. And I think there's something about law. It takes so much energy to pass a piece of legislation so much fighting to pass these of leg- legislation. I, I I think that legislation can sometimes bring an end to some of that political men- momentum and that political that political drive. Um, but I get, and that, that's perfectly relatable, isn't it? You finish a massive research project and then you've got to start thinking about, you know, your impact activities that you're being asked to do. And you're like, oh, I've done the project. I've done all the work, you know. So I, I think there's something there about um, what we do after law and the story after legislation and how we continue momentum. Um, I think that is part of it is about having systems of accountability that are in place to make sure that those things are implemented effectively, that they do have the kind of desired social changes that you want to see. Um, and I think that's what we've been dissatisfied with in Malta, that there hasn't been that kind of pressure on the government to deliver here. Um, because they they don't have a visible intersex organization that's kind of a national organization that's that's calling them out on this. They do have some really great LGBT organizations, but um, yeah. So so yeah, the, the research for us is shifting, and it's shifting now. 
Um, but it, you know, keeps us keeps us interested. So, so in terms of what can Lord do, I think it can do stuff, but that process is slow. It's not, uh, you know, it's not necessarily about just legislation. It's about tracing the effects post legislation and keeping the pressure on afterwards, which maybe involves, you know, maybe it involves international law and NGOs and and again working in a slightly different register to ones that we're used to. Yeah, and how it sparks off like public conversations. And I think in Malta, those public conversations haven't happened yet. Um, so the, the passage of law. And, you know, we haven't had a test case, like even in the UK, we haven't had a test case. But, you know, it's the media and it's the, it's the energy that surrounds those kind of like public mechanisms through which law is done. I think that really has the biggest impact on um, on lived experience. Or the biggest potential, I should say. So then I guess my question is, reflecting on the sort of limits of leg- of change broadly from the legislative reform in Malta, are there any lessons we can sort of draw from this example that might be applicable more broadly to other jurisdictions? Uh, you have to get medical buy-in. I think that is so, so essential that you, you have to turn medical professionals to your way of thinking about intersex people and about social change make them see the worth of what you're talking about because otherwise it seems that it's not that they'll find loopholes it's in some some in some instances it's just that they don't think these types of human rights laws apply to them like what they just don't speak to each other the scale differences between international law and your average medical doctor just don't speak to one another so having the buy-in of medical professionals as a you know professional organization through the sort of co-option of individuals i think is really really helpful to making this a success it's not the only way but i think it really helps speed up that process of change and success yeah, uh, yeah, and I, I think Mitch's point there about medical buy-in. Medical buy-in is different from medical dominance in the process. It, you know, it's 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 getting people on on board before change is implemented because it, Malta the the stalling seems to come from where medical practitioners suddenly realize that they might be talking about their area of practice, but they didn't, they just weren't aware of this. And so if there's a sense that it changes happened and conversations haven't happened with the right people, I think you get a lot of a lot of pushback, but also a lot of hostility as as you know as well. You know, medical practitioners are human beings. There's a lot of defensiveness that goes on in this area. You know, I don't, medical practitioners I don't think want to think that they're hurting and before, you know, performing interventions that amount to torture and degrading human um, human, uh, um, so I, I think there is a necessity to do that. And in Australia, I think it was in New South Wales, they've just introduced a piece of legislation, which isn't perfect by any means. There's been a lot of compromise. But the conversation that Malta's having now happened before that piece of legislation was introduced. And you can really see the difference in what's been included in the act and what hasn't. And, you know, we're waiting to see what happens in, in Australia as a, bit, as a result of this bit of legislation. But I... I feel like medical pushback won't be the issue here. There'll be other issues, but it, it you won't have that initial stalling before you can even get anything else done. So in, in Malta, they're having one or two, um, there are there's sort of one or two variations that are being disputed over whether or not they're intersex or not. As a result of that, everything else that they've agreed is intersex 
isn't benefiting from the legislation because it's entirely derailed um, derailed the process. So like working out what the derailment could be beforehand is really important to make sure you can get it, get the rest in for everyone else and then talk out the, the nuances and the gray areas and the, the, the really difficult conversations. So sort of, I guess my next question is like blue sky thinking. If, you know, we could design this ideal legislation, get sort of medical buy-in, cultural buy-in, social education campaigns, you know, in an ideal world, should there be a, you know, third gender that recognises intersex? Or is that overly simplistic? I, so it maybe, maybe there's a couple of different ways to take that, right? So one way would be to say that, um, if we if we had a category of uh, gender that was non-binary, then lots of different people would take that up. Uh, non-binary trans people might take that up, and some intersex people might take that up. But I think it's really important to note that not all intersex people would take that up. They, you know, they would happily be male or female or intersex male, or intersex female or whatever. But they, they, they. Well, I think we want to sort of decouple the idea of non-binary and intersex being synonymous because they're not. It's just two categories that sometimes overlap. So if we introduce non-binary, that's fine, but it's not necessarily a goal of the intersex movement, but it might be for some individuals. So so maybe. Um, and then, you know, could we then take that further and look at the work of people like Davina Cooper and Flora Renz to say, well, what happens if we get rid of the registration of sex and gender altogether like what happens if we just take that off birth certificates what happens if we take that off driving licenses and passports like what work does it do there and what does it signal if it isn't there so and they, their work on the future of legal gender is really really interesting um a massive non-answer to the question but i just think <laughs> um I, I don't know whether that would then if, if we were kind of more comfortable with the idea that sex and gender doesn't really matter that much at least from the point of view of the documentation of the state then maybe that opens up a little bit more space for parents and children to have productive conversations with medical doctors and psychosocial uh therapists to say you know, maybe we could just leave it for a bit until the child is old enough to decide on their own gender identity. We don't have to touch anything surgically while we wait. Um, and then when they're old enough to to make sort of capacitous decisions here, then they can choose surgery or not based on their preferences. I, um, I guess there is a, certainly a difference between adults and children. And I guess if you get to a point where gender categories aren't important at all, then I guess it doesn't really matter whether or not you would have a, th a third op option. You know, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't necessarily have the um, dramatic implications that um, that it has now. But I feel slightly cynical in whether that's entirely possible. Um, definitely agree with Mitch that you know third um, gender markers should be available to intersex people in the way they should be available to everyone that if you would like to use them then use them and use it as a um, as a way to express your identity but not to have it forced on you but with with children I think you have to be really careful about um, how you categorize them because if parents are afraid about what that categorization means that's where you start to see responses that are might not necessarily have that individual child's best interest at heart so and let's, so let's talk about germany Faye. explain yeah. germany 
uh, so Germany, what, 2013, it brought in a law where you can have, um, you, you essentially have space on your birth certificate or your registration papers um, where you, if you had an intersex child or if um, their sex was ambiguous, you didn't have to put a marker down on it since you can, you can now put down a marker that's dispute over space and form markers. But essentially what that led to was an outing of your child as being outside of the binary and parents didn't want that for their children. Um, and as a result, you saw an increase in people agreeing to surgeries, having surgeries so that their child could fall within the marker. So I think, I think we have to be extra careful with children, it, extra, extra careful with children and thinking about how parents might respond to things and, and how that reflects broader attitudes to non-binary and LGBT and transphobia and homophobia. Because a lot of those, a lot of people who are fearful about their child being different stems from broader um, discrimination against what it means I, to be I, different. I think that's right. So like, it's, it's all very well for us to sit here and say stuff about third markers and how important they are. And I think that's right. And and people are, you know, taking up that battle. Really great people are doing this work on this area. I don't think children should be at the forefront of that battle, the forefront of disrupting yeah. the gender binary. Unless they, you know, if they want to. Yeah, fine. yeah. my caveat is, of course, not to stop them from, from it, you know, as they express themselves, but that it shouldn't be the adults it's, making that decision. Yeah. And it, should, it shouldn't be a mandatory category for intersex yeah. people. So I think that does place these kids in a really difficult position um, and at the front of a gender war for which they did not consent to be part of. But then what you need then, though, is you need malleability, right? So if you are picking um, a letter, um, you need you need to be able to change that as the child's body change. You know, the child undergoes significant physical development in those first few early years, but also again through puberty, they don't really know the exact way in which a body is going to develop. They can predict it, but they don't really know. So I think you need to have a system in place that also is able to change and, and, and allows that individual to um, to really reflect who they are. Just a bit of flexibility, which is yeah. what law is known for, right? That law loves flexibility and impermanence and indeterminacy. That's what it really does well at. <laughs> <laughs> So then I guess my next question is, do you have any key takeaways from your book? Um, for me, I think, I think so the, doing the projects, there's lots that you learn and lots that's revealed that you weren't expecting. So I've got a huge amount to say about Malta, huge amount um, that we learned from engaging with the activists. But I think in terms of writing the book, I think it really was that self-reflection. And my favourite chapter that we wrote was, I think it's chapter, is it chapter two or chapter three on non-binary and really critiquing academia's role in creating some of these myths around intersex. And I I think that has been the biggest takeaway from the, I feel like that has really changed the way that we're approaching different sorts of research projects now. Like positionality um, is right at, at the starting point of when we're thinking about how to design a next project. I, I really like, <laughs> I really like about my own book, I really like uh, the idea of contingency that's kind of built into the book. So if you are coming from uh, or, or engaging with a particular institution, it will frame intersex in different ways, right? So medical frame it as disorder. If you come from this LGBT perspective, you uh, identify it in this kind of like queer mode, non-binary might take it in this non-binary lens as well um and i think 
I like that. In I like the idea of that being scalable and taking that to different projects where you could take a particular instance of embodiment and say the way that this is read and understood is contingent on the type of institution that it's engaging with. Um, I just that for me that was kind of the one of the starting points of the project, and I think we delivered that in a really nice and accessible way um and that's the thing and i think that we take that into the the next projects that we do is the kind of the contingency of this yeah actually that's something i learned from reading your book um i do think that contingency is really transferable um i mean i was sort of reading it i do work in disability um and thinking about you know the different ways of embodiment like from a medical perspective from a legal perspective and how this can change the way you do your research and the outputs of your research as well and how you can work with communities. Yeah. And, you know, thinking about the way capacity would be read in different situations yes, or by different exactly. institutions and that, that a lot of the conflicts could be read through these different institutional gazes, I guess. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so I've taken up a lot of your time today, both of you. Just before you go, can you tell me what are you working on now? Are we allowed to say? <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> so, um, so we are, from the Malta Project, we're writing out a couple articles um, that uh, really start to delve into what the findings mean in terms of um, law and social change. Um, and we are looking to put together some grants that maybe use Malta as a little bit of a pilot project and think more broadly about um how law is how it's been able to disrupt medical narratives in this sphere yeah we've also just uh had a piece accepted in feminist legal studies uh which is about gender diverse children but you know trans children more often than not um and some of the stuff that's happened to them since Bell and Tavistock, but reading this case, Bell and Tavistock, through a temporal lens, which again is about contingency really, isn't it? And the way that we might understand these children's relationship with time and how that's read through different institutions. And we came to that through <laughs> our focus on inter so originally that article started off as like comparing intersex with gender diverse children and trying to unpick why we've got really different approaches in law where one is seemingly pushing on surgeries and interventions when children can't consent and the other seems to be pushing away from surgeries and interventions when you've got children who are um, and young adults who very clear on their sense of self um but then it ended up just being too big so we we lent into the gender diversity aspect yeah but that's that's it's a nice piece that one i'm excited yeah. So that's yeah i'll definitely look forward to reading it because i mean as i say i learned so much reading your book all about um obviously so much about intersex which is something i didn't know about but also these ideas about law and social change and how law can or the limits of law in terms of disrupting medical narratives um it was just and you know all the work you did on positionality and that really comes through and um i think i do think it's a really transferable book for so many um so many scholars that's nice to hear thank you <laughs> yeah um so just to Bring it to a close. I'm Jane Richards. I've been speaking with Dr. Faye Garland and Dr. Mitchell Travis, and their book is Intersex Embodiment, Legal Frameworks Beyond Identity and Disorder.
Faye and Mitch, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thanks, thanks for having us. us. That was lovely. Oh, great.